This week, you may have seen a jury was seated in the trial of Kyle Rittenhouse in Kenosha, Wisconsin. He's charged with seven counts of murder and attempted murder in the death and injury to three protesters in Kenosha following the Jacob Blake shooting by police. Some say uh, cases are won or lost once the jury is selected. In a case like this that's so emotionally and politically charged, uh, this uh, jury selection might even be more crucial. And is jury selection an art or a science? With us to talk about these issues is David Zayner, founder of Zayner Trial Consulting, based here in Chicago. Zayner has helped uh, trial lawyers in jury selection, mock trials, and witness preparation in over a 1,000 cases in almost every state in the country. And he's a friend of the Karen Conti Show. Hi, David. How are you? Doing great, Karen. Thanks for having me on. So I'm sure you're following this. Uh, what uh, do you make of the jury selection and how it went down? Uh, you know, how, what, from what we could tell uh, during the selection, how the jurors reacted? Yeah, it was it was a really surprising jury selection. Uh, uh, we, we have the template of how you probably should do a jury selection like this uh, with the Chauvin case uh, in, in Minneapolis, uh, uh, the Van Dyke case in Chicago, the I mean the Aubrey case in down in Georgia, and this kind of went against uh, pretty much everything that we've learned from how to properly conduct one of these one of these uh, jury selections. It went very fast, and uh, we've already seen that at least one juror with a pretty strong bias was uh, allowed on, onto the panel. So it's uh, it's it's not too encouraging for uh, the overall results. Well, let's start with the idea that, and if I'm not mistaken, what happened is the judge said to everybody, hey, is there anybody here who has not heard this case and not a single hand went up? I mean, what do you make of that? Yeah, jurors are very uh, hesitant to talk in open court. There's, I mean, in that particular room, there were 44 people. They were sitting there. Uh, you, you kind of have to do a little bit of warm-up to get jurors talking. And what really is the most effective way to ask that question is in a juror questionnaire beforehand, because you don't want to be reliant on people being comfortable talking in front of a large group of people, media, et cetera. You want them to be comfortable. And so by giving them a chance to express it in writing ahead of time where they have time to think about it, you're going to get a much better uh, response rate and a m- much more accurate responses. I mean, the judge, the judge conducted it himself. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah, he said he had never done a uh, written questionnaire in 30 years, and he wasn't going to start with this one. And so in a case like this, uh, you know, well, let's go to the juror who was dismissed. And the understanding was it was an older gentleman, I believe, and he was telling some joke, uh, kind of a not not a very nice joke. Uh, and uh, t- tell us how it went down, to your knowledge. To my knowledge, he was talking to one of the court personnel, and he, for some reason, thought it would be a good time to make some kind of and I don't know the exact details of the joke, but uh, but some kind of uh, of, of joke about Blake uh, that uh, and the court personnel did the right thing and reported it to the judge, and it was obviously showed potential bias. But these are the kind of things that really should have come out during the jury selection, and the fact that someone like that made it through the jury selection without any problems, uh, it's not a, it's, it's a sign that the uh, that the entire panel might might not necessarily be able to to to, uh, to make it to its final results. I mean, jury selection is important. We all know that, uh, and and you know that more than anyone because this is what you do for a living. But I just feel like this case uh, is just so, it's such a polarized situation. We have half the world saying this guy was a Second Amendment hero who was there to protect the businesses in Kenosha, and the other half of the world is saying he's a right-wing crazy with a gun who's there to kill protesters. And it seems like there's nothing in between. And 
um, you know, I don't know if you saw this, but Eric Zorn, who's one of my favorite journalists in, in Chicago, uh, wrote a column saying that justice, you know, justice for, uh, you know, people, you know, he, he says that people talk about justice. And what we're talking about in a trial is not justice for the outcome. The justice is really having jurors listen to the facts, those particular facts, and to do the right thing, not to make a statement about people carrying guns or was it good for that he was a carrying a gun or were the protesters wrong? Do Black Lives Matter, uh, is that a good organization or not? Th- that you have to just pay attention to the facts. So how do you select a jury that can keep their eye on that ball and not vote uh, with their political uh, part of their brain? Yeah, that's a really good way to describe it. I mean, uh, the outcome should be uh, jurors listening impartially to the facts. And it's really hard in a case like this. Because it got so much publicity, jurors had developed, as you said, some very strong attitudes, or potential jurors had developed. And so the, the whole goal of the jury selection should have been to take the time to individually analyze each juror's potential views and not to determine that they had no views, because you're never going to find people who had, I mean, everyone, when they eventually were asked about it, had heard of the case uh, and had developed probably some views. The goal would be to find people who are willing to put those views aside. And that's very hard to do. And the way you get at that is you give them a chance to express how they feel about the case, what they've heard what their views are, if they've developed any pre-existing opinions, and then the judge uh, can evaluate, okay, who are the people who I really believe from talking to them and listening to them that they are able to put aside whatever pre-existing views they have and actually evaluate the evidence in the case? Because that's what you're looking for, as, as you, you mentioned. Uh, you're looking for people who don't bring their pre-existing views uh, to determine the case. People hear what they want to hear if they have strong pre-existing views. And my concern with this jury is that we may have uh, people on both sides uh, who have already made up their minds without hearing any of the evidence. Uh, when we come back, I want to talk a little bit more about the evidence that's been uh, in court so far and what, what you make of it. David Zayner, uh, one of the best trial consultants and jury consultants in the country, will be back in a minute on WGN. We're talking about the Kyle Rittenhouse jury trial in Kenosha, Wisconsin, and we're here with trial consultant David Zayner. Let's play a little bit, uh, Jack, of the prosecution's opening statement. The central issue in this case is going to be self-defense. Was it reasonable for the defendant to believe that the force was necessary to prevent imminent death or great bodily harm to himself? We need to keep in mind the fact that there were hundreds of people on the street that night, experiencing the same chaos, the same loud noises, the same gunfire, the same arson, the same tear gas, the same hostile confrontations with people who believe the opposite of them. And yet out of these hundreds of people, only one person killed anyone that night. Only one person shot anyone that night. When we consider the reasonableness of the defendant's actions, I ask you to keep that in mind. And now let's hear a little bit of the defense. He acted in self-defense, ladies and gentlemen. The evidence will show that his actions on August 25th of 2020 were reasonable under the circumstances as they existed that night being attacked by Mr. Rosenbaum. Kyle Rittenhouse protected himself, protected his firearm so it couldn't be taken used against him or other people from Mr. Rosenbaum who'd made threats to kill and the other individuals who didn't see that shooting 
attacked him in the street like an animal. So, David, from listening to these opening statements and maybe watching some of the testimony, hearing some of the testimony, what do you make of how well the prosecution is proving its case and how well the defense is doing? Well, they both are have their themes and they're they're working very hard to establish them, uh, and they're trying to play into pre-existing uh, attitudes and beliefs that that people have. I mean, the prosecution is is trying to play into the idea that uh, it is never okay to shoot someone who um, is without being in, in 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 fear of your life, and then the defense is emphasizing the idea that. Anyone who feels threatened has a right to protect themselves. So both of them are doing a pretty good job so far of establishing their themes. And the question is, which, which, what type of jurors do they have and which, which themes are going to predominate uh, when the jurors go to make a decision? And, you know, this case to me, if you're going to just put away all your political thoughts and your gun issues and, and, and all the way you're wired, is going to come down to what happens. He shoots three times, and these are the crimes. So just before he takes out that gun and he shoots, twice killing, once injuring, what happened immediately preceding those three shots? And was he, number one, uh, and this is what the law says, as you know, is did he himself believe, did he, Kyle, say to himself, oh my gosh, someone's going to kill me or harm me? Uh, and number two, is that a reasonable belief? Is that a person who is just a normal, reasonable person? Would he have that same belief? And that, to me, comes right down to what happens immediately preceding. Do you think that jurors can parse that, um, or do you think that how they're wired coming to the case will taint even that defined uh, bit of evidence. Yeah, I think jurors are going to hear what their pre-existing attitudes and beliefs make them w- want to hear. And so jurors who are predisposed to think that it is it, that protecting yourself is, is paramount are going to kind of merge together the events uh, and make it seem reasonable, his actions, whereas jurors who are more predisposed to think that you have to take extreme care not to hurt people um, are going to be more predisposed to think that he had time to make deliberate decisions. I think that he is going to have a much bigger issue. I mean, the first shooting, he has more of, an, more of a good defense with the idea that someone grabbed his gun. And jurors may make a distinction between the first shooting and the subsequent shootings, because the subsequent shootings, these are not people um, who were a direct threat to him, but they were coming him because they saw him shoot someone. And it's, it's harder for the defense to, I mean, as you heard in the opening, they had to kind of elide over that and just kind of say, well, and then the other two kind of came and attacked him also. Well, they came, they came over uh, for most of the testimony, even of people who are sympathetic to the defense in testifying um, because they thought he was shooting someone and they didn't see what had occurred before that. Interesting. And so um, one of the things that I noticed uh, is, and, and, and I'm sure this was made much of in the press this past week, that the judge made some pretrial rulings saying that the people who died uh, cannot be uh, referred to as victims. And that's normal because, you know, if you call someone a victim, that assumes there is a crime committed and you're presumed to be innocent in our society. So you can't call them a victim uh, in trial. And that makes sense. I think the judge was correct in that. And the judge also went on to say that 
if it is deemed that those people who were deceased or injured were looting and rioting, that the lawyers could refer to them as looters and rioters, but only if that was proven. I saw that the defense really went after the the victims or the purported victims, I guess, um, saying, you know, kind of villainizing them, uh, even in the opening statement. Is that risky? Because you've got two people dead and one person injured by gunshot and you're villainizing them. Is that a good strategy in your view? It's risky, but it's the only, I think it's the only uh, defense that they have. Um, and, and, and I don't think it's a bad defense. I think it's if, if you're going to make the argument that it is a self-defense, then you have to uh, villainize the people that um, were shot because he has to have uh, Rittenhouse has to have a reason why uh, he felt it was necessary to take those actions. So once you go down that path, you have to, as you said, villainize the people because and make them make the jurors think, well, it's understandable why he felt it was necessary to shoot them, because if you go halfway then it's almost like you don't believe your own defense and jurors pick up on that. Right. And they, so they expect the defense jurors, the defense defense to uh, attack in this case, given what the defense is. Now, Kyle Rittenhouse is obviously young. He was even younger when this, uh, this situation went down and, and he looks, he looks even younger than his, his years. How do you think his youth is going to play before the jury? Is this going to work in his, in his, to his benefit, or are people going to say, what the heck was this kid doing out there with an illegal gun at his age? I think that's going to be one of the most interesting questions about uh, this case when, when it eventually gets decided, because as there's, there's two ways the jurors can go with this, and, uh, and it's, it's not clear yet which way they're going to go. Um, if, if they are looking for a reason to excuse his actions, they are going to say, well, he was young, and even though maybe what he did wasn't right, it's understandable why he, at his young age, felt, felt afraid and in fear of his life. But the, the prosecution, um, I think, will try and say he made multiple choices to be there in that situation. And while he is young, he, is, he made these decisions, and he has to take responsibility for those decisions. And those decisions put him in that situation because he wanted to be there. He wanted to have the opportunity to be a protector. And eventually, I think the prosecution will say he wanted to find someone who he could harm on the day uh, of this, this event. He wanted to uh, shoot and kill these people. He had decided that before he got there. I think that's where they're going to eventually land in their closing arguments. And it, you know, we're talking about, uh, it was talking in the press uh, earlier about whether or not Rittenhouse will testify. And a lot of the pundits are saying that, yeah, he really has to because he has to tell the jury himself. He's got to say, this is why I did it. This is why I really believe that I was going to be killed. And he's the only one who can say that. Um, on the other hand, he, to me, is a young person. Uh, he, to me, is a person maybe who didn't make very many good decisions to get himself there. And my guess is he's not going to be the stellar uh, witness. I mean, he's been yawning at trial, um, which is just not acceptable when you're on trial for murder. But let's just say that you were representing uh, the defense and you, the trial consultant, and you're working with witnesses. What you do to try to get them to be effective witnesses. How would you work with, with Rittenhouse and what kind of themes would you have him testify about? I, 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 I have to admit that I would be shocked if he actually does testify. Uh, I, given his age and his immaturity, uh, it, it's very difficult for it's very difficult for almost anyone to withstand a cross examination by experienced prosecutors like this. 
And I think putting him on trial makes the case entirely about him. And so my number one piece of advice if I was working with the defense would be do not put him on. Instead, tell his story through other witnesses. And they've done a good job with that. Uh, The reporter who said that, uh, who basically strongly uh, advocated that he looked like he was in fear of his life. Uh, The first person, the first person who came after him grabbed his gun and it was threatening to him. Uh, It's much, he's much better off telling the story that way. And whatever value he would get by showing his state of mind in his direct testimony would be lost by all the questions that he really would not be able to answer in his cross. So I don't think there's anything they can really do to prepare him to uh, do an effective job of testifying. So my strongest advice would be you, you can't put him on. You have to leave him, leave him, and you have to leave that reasonable doubt that he really was in fear of his life, as shown by the testimony of other people who were there. David Zaner, thank you so much for joining us. Can you quickly give out your phone number? Sure, uh, 312-415-1726. Thank you, as always, for joining the show, and we'll check in with you again uh, during the course of it. Take care. All right, th- thanks, Karen.